He is risen. Good. You guys understand this, that this, this is what we come together every Sunday. But we come together on this day, especially um, within the United States, as a, spe- as a special day to look at the resurrection and understand what it is for us. So, you know, Easter is special not just because it's the one day a year you'll see me with a tie up here. I know that that is, you know, Easter around the mission is the time when Hans wears a tie and we put some extra stuff on stage, right? Um, but it is the day where we worship the Lord uh, as we do every Sunday, but with particular focus on the fact that he is victorious because of his rec- resurrection. So today we celebrate one thing and one thing only, the victorious Christ. And oh, how this is a message that I need this morning, and I believe it is one that you need as well. It's one that we can rejoice in when we say we are victorious in Christ. We are victorious in Christ. Why don't you guys say it with me? We are victorious in Christ. Over the last few weeks, I've been looking uh, forward to the resurrection, um, Resurrection Sunday. How many of you look forward to Easter? Okay, now put the hands down. How many of you Easter creeps up on you and you didn't know that it was here? Yeah? I was going through uh, Fred Meyer the other day, and there were a bunch of moms and dads scrambling to get, you know, eggs and candy and all this stuff. Can't believe Easter is already here. Well, I've been looking forward to it because I've been reminded over and over the last few weeks how badly we need the resurrection. Whether it be the threat of warfare that seems like it's on the news 24-7 from the east and the west. Whether it be the fact that our brothers and sisters in Egypt were massacred as they went to worship on Good Friday. Whether it be individual warfare in which we are each fighting the sins in our own life or sins that have been done against us or simply mourning the hurt and pain that is all around us. Our hearts and souls yearn for hope each and every day. And the hope that we have as Christians comes from God's promise of victory over that which aims to destroy us. As we look at the text before us in Isaiah 33 this morning, I know we've skipped ahead a bit, but I want to look at this this text as the jumping off point for what we're going to talk about today. Remember for Judah, um, the southern kingdom at this point, They were looking off in the distance, and to the east they saw this great foe, the giant kingdom of Assyria, breathing down their necks, coming to destroy them and invade them, as they already had done to the northern tribe, or or the northern kingdom of Israel. And to those that desired to be faithful to Yahweh in the midst of Judah, they were broken because they saw their brothers and sisters, who should be following Yahweh, broken themselves, acting in sinfulness and rebelliousness, not in the righteousness and justice of Yahweh. And so these people cried out, to help, uh, cried out to Yahweh for help. To those that were in rebellion against God, they weren't so much worried about the relationship with God, but they saw the destructive force of Assyria coming in, and they cried out to Yahweh for help, not realizing that they were distanced. Overall, the entire kingdom cried out to God, and Isaiah captures their statements in Isaiah 33. Let's take a look there. Isaiah 33, starting in verse 1, and we're going to go through verse 9. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Ah, you destroyer, who yourself have not been destroyed, you traitor whom none has betrayed. When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed, and when you have finished betraying, they will betray you. O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning, our salvation in the time of trouble. 
At the tumultuous noise, peoples flee. When you lift yourself up, nations are scattered, and your spoil is gathered as the caterpillar gathers. As locusts leap, it is leapt upon. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He fills Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Behold, their heroes cry in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The highways lie waste. The traveler ceases. Covenants are broken. Cities are despised. There is no regard for man. The land mourns and languishes. Lebanon is confounded and withers away. Sharon is like a desert, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their leaves. We see in this section three distinct cries of the people. We see first the cry for victory over that which destroys. That first paragraph there, ah, you destroyer. There is no specific destroyer. No commentator that writes on this section ever says this is absolutely Satan or this is absolutely Assyria or another character. It's just a cry against that which destroys, a cry over that which destroys. Do you ever feel that way? That there's just this destructive force around you and you can't quite put your finger on whose fault it is or what's going on? I think that's part of the reason that our country is, is so upside down when it comes to how do we fight terrorism. Well, because is it an ideology? Is it a group of people? Is it Satan behind the scenes? What is it? Is it a geography? And so our cry as people is the same as the cry in Judah, the cry for victory over that which destroys. Secondly, we see the cry of lament about the brokenness around them. We are, as we will learn over the next couple of weeks going through uh, some other chapters in Isaiah, we are the escapist culture, are we not? America, that's what we are. That should be on the borders, on the signs as people come into our country. Welcome to America. Here's where you escape, right? And not in a good sense, in a bad sense. For a long time, we've been the beacon of liberty for people to escape oppression. But the reality is we've become a people that like to escape rather than view the fact that there is tons around us that cries out for lament, that we must mourn because it is brokenness. And that brokenness as Christians is actually something that we grasp onto and we take to the cross rather than trying to avoid it and escape it. It's what draws us to the cross of Christ, is the lament we have for the brokenness around us. Whether it be something in your own life or something you see outside of you, there is lament that is necessary in order to speak the truth of the world we live in. Sickness, brokenness, hurt, shame, guilt, all these things pull us to the cross. And then the third thing we see is the cry for the Lord to be strong and redeem. Uh, he says there, be gracious to us, we wait for you. And then he cries out and says, we need you to be our arm, we need you to be our salvation, okay? That word arm there in chapter 2 or verse 2 is also in Hebrew used for the word strength. We need you to be our strength. We need you to be our salvation. Lord, we need you to be strong. How many of you find these same cries coming from your own mouth lately? How many of you lately find that your heart, even when your tongue and your lips are not able to profess it, your heart is simply crying out, Lord, I need you to be strong because I can't be. I need you to be strong in my life because I'm dealing with shame or brokenness or sin. I need you to be strong because my little ones are so hurting. I need you to be strong because of the sickness that's invaded our household. Whatever it might be, we cry out for God to be our salvation. 
Now, left to their own devices, Judah was completely without hope. They couldn't overcome these things on their own. For us, we know that it is true no matter what we try, we are in the same boat as Judah. We cannot gain ground ourselves. We cannot be strong in ourselves. In fact, don't you notice that when we are, when we're strong in ourselves, we actually become weaker? We realize that we falter and fail, and we need that salvation of Jesus. The brokenness just persists. And this is where the next verse comes in, and it breathes life into our very weary bodies. The next verse delivers the greatest news that the people of Judah could receive. And it's the greatest news that we can receive this Easter morning. Take a look at verse 10. Now I will arise, says the Lord. Now I will lift myself up. Now I will be exalted. The basic message here is simple. The Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel and Judah, he will act. He's heard their cries and he will act. Now the NIV and I think the NASB say it this way, now will I arise, says the Lord, now will I be exalted, now will I be lifted up. And you read that and you say, ah, oh, it's not too different. But notice here, the ESV actually translate it, translates it, now I will lift myself up. Now you think, wait a minute, why, why is it different? Well, if you go back and look at the Hebrew, the verb there, the voice there, it actually speaks of this special type of verb that is used very rarely. It is the most rare type of verb in the Bible. And here's what it means. It means that the object being lifted up and the subject that does the lifting is the same thing. The object being lifted up and the subject that does the lifting is the same thing. If God were just to say there, now I will be lifted up, well, anything could lift him up. But notice the wording here, guys, and I know I'm getting very specific, but notice this. Now I will lift myself up. What we see here and why this is important is because the strength and the power of redemption never comes from man, ever. No part of our salvation comes from us. I believe that this picture is very perfectly the ultimate answer of victory, not just the victory that Judah would have, but the victory of the resurrection of God's own son, Jesus Christ, from the grave. Who made Jesus rise from the grave? God himself. Well, Hans, isn't Jesus God? Yes, that's the whole point. You see, we worship a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this triune God created humanity and placed within us his spirit. And we proceeded to rebel against him and cause separation from him, the source of life which only can lead to death and brokenness upon ourselves. And the sin of all mankind against an infinite God is that there is an infinite sin that must be paid for. There is an infinite sin that separates us. And there's an infinite cost. And I don't know about you, I'm a pretty big guy, but I don't think I can pay with this body infinite, the price of infinite sin. None of us can take care of that cost by ourselves. We need that same infinite God that has been sinned against to pay the price for that infinite sin. You see, there are many people that celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, but they do so in saying that Jesus was just simply a man. He was a prophet. He was a good man. But the reality is, is if he was not the infinite God come in the flesh, he could never have paid the price for the infinite cost of sin. And so when we think of the resurrection, it is necessary that God would do the work, that he would lift himself up. 
And so the Father sent his Son, born of a woman, to live, minister, and then be offered up to death for sin that he did not commit, so that he would take upon himself the judgment of the Father, that we might be seen as righteous and forgiven in the Father's eyes. Isaiah uses similar language to chapter 33. Moving forward in Isaiah, turn to Isaiah 52 with me. Many of you are very familiar with this section of Scripture. But let's go to Isaiah 52 and see the foretelling of how the ultimate victory would come. Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. This is one of what's called the servant songs. We'll be covering these as we go through Isaiah. There are four of them. And this is speaking of the servant. Now, uh, many Israelites or Jews today would say, well, this is speaking of Israel, but I think as you read through it and you see, this is not speaking of a group of people. It's speaking of one servant, and that servant would come to be Jesus Christ. Isaiah 52, verse 13. God says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm or the strength of the Lord been revealed? There's that same wording. For he, speaking of Jesus, grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was just a normal-looking guy. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Amen? All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people." And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Isaiah uses similar language here as he does in chapter 33. Because our triune God saw the oppression of his people to sin. And so he looked at that oppression of the devil, the sickness, and the brokenness around us, and he rose to act. 
Just as in Isaiah 33, God looked upon the pain of his people and he says, now I will do something about it. What we celebrate today is the fact that God looked down upon mankind, mankind that had chosen freely to rebel against him. It was our choice to say, we don't want you, we don't trust you. And yet he saw the effects of that was the sin and brokenness in which we live. And so God, just as he did for Judah, he said, I will now arise and I will act. He poured out his own wrath upon himself and then by his own power rose from the grave, exalting himself above all powers, all sin, all shame, and all guilt. And our sin is dealt with in his death. And we, as a result, are victorious in his resurrection. Say it with me. We are victorious in Christ. Say it again. We are victorious in Christ. So let's take the rest of the time together this morning. After looking at Isaiah and seeing the work that he had done, let's take a look and see what it means to be victorious in Jesus Christ. First, we will see that we have victory for the sinner. That's good news, is it not? Victory for the sinner. The Bible speaks of this thing called sin in a number of different ways. It can mean to miss the mark. It can mean to miss the holiness of God and be unholy or polluted. But I think what you see across the entire Bible is what sin is, is sin is division. Sin is division in the midst of relationship. And so sin caused division between each one of us and the God that created us and gives us life. He is altogether holy with nothing lacking and desires to be one with us in intimate relationship. And yet everything in us pushes away in relationship. The older I get, I am just blown away. Do you, guys, do you guys see this as much as I do? That no matter how badly we want relationship as humans, we do everything within our power to push it away. We keep people at a distance. We push God aside. We don't want anyone to know us. And that is the nature of sin. We don't trust God to provide for us, to love us, to fulfill us or forgive us. We don't trust him to be enough to remove our shame. So we strive after all sorts of other things that will fulfill us. And the result of being separated from the source of life is death. And from that first moment where we distrusted him in the Garden of Eden, we have been doing the same thing. And death reigned in the earth. Sin not only causes division with God, but also division with those around us. Because we don't trust the source of life and believe we must fulfill ourselves, everything becomes a competition. And we look upon one another with distrust. If they get ahead of me, then I can't get ahead of them, and I can't get fulfilled. And this leads to a world of competition where we only look out for ourselves if we are going to survive. For the people of Judah in our text this morning, there was sin in their midst. For many, it was their rebelliousness against God. For others, it was their rebelliousness against one of their own. But the reality is, is that they were causing their own crisis in a sense. But just as God acted for them on that resurrection morning, God defeated sin. Well, how did he do this? Well, the first thing he did is he came to you and me and he said, all of the rebellion you forced against me, all of the pushing me aside, I'm still here and I still love you and it's okay, I forgive you. All of our rebellion against God had been paid for and God himself showed us by coming in the flesh that he still wanted to be one with us. There weren't any caveats. There weren't any qualifications. God the Father wanted unity with his creation. The weight and consequence of sin has been discharged. 
and it no longer carries weight. If you're a person in here who is sitting in your seat wondering if God can love you, if God can forgive your shame, if he can forgive your guilt, he already has. He already has. Any oppression, any weight of sin that keeps you distant from God, it's like you sitting in an open cell with the door wide open. God has already forgiven you, removed your shame, and granted you freedom. And because Jesus rose from the grave, we can see that there is no need to fight against him, but there's also no need to compete against one another. There is no need to overpower one another. There is no need to oppress one another. We can all have life and all be fulfilled in it. And so we give room to one another to confess and repent and live in covenant relationship, knowing that what God did to us, I will stay with you. I will walk through forgiveness. I will walk through confession. We do that with one another. And in the community of Christ, when this is active, it shows a witness to the world that God is good and he is forgiveness. And so this Sunday, this Resurrection Sunday, I can absolutely say that God has given victory over sin because of the resurrection. Say it with me. We are victorious in Christ. Say it again. We are victorious in Christ. The second thing we see is victory for the oppressed. From the beginning of the story of God, we see that the heart of God is to free the oppressed. It boggles the mind how often we, mankind, myself, have perverted Scripture in order to oppress. Because the very character of God is to free those who are oppressed. The God we serve is the Exodus God, in which He heard the cry of His people in slavery and brought them a Redeemer to free them. Now, what is oppression? We think immediately slavery, and we say, well, luckily, many of us, man, we, we don't even know what that's like. Praise God for that. But the reality is, is that to be oppressed is to feel crushed under the weight of anything. How many of you in here this morning are feeling crushed under the weight of something that might even be good news? How many of you as parents feel crushed under the burden of being a parent? How many of you students feel crushed under the burden of trying to move forward in life and fulfill all the dreams and desires you have or the desires maybe your parents have for you? We can be oppressed by any number of things. For the Jews in Isaiah 33, they were under both the weight of sin and the ensuing weight of potential exile and slavery. And granted, some oppression is way more difficult and way heavier than others. True slavery is way more oppressive than the burden you or I might feel on any given day. But for you and I, it may be things like the weight of sin or maybe the weight of anxiousness and depression. Or maybe it is the oppression of abuse that you have suffered that holds you in its traumatic grip. The older I get, the more I realize people, more people than not, have trauma in their past that they are still stuck under the weight of its burden. Maybe it's enslavement to a given addiction. Or maybe it's the weightiness of the shame that you carry for something that has long been forgiven. Or a feeling you can't shake that maybe you've failed. 
Maybe it's simply the lie that you are unworthy of love. Do any of these resonate with you this morning? Whatever it is that oppresses you this morning, God spoke on that resurrection Sunday. He wants to remove your burden. All these weights that hold us down have at their root the desire of the destroyer to remove the king from his rightful throne as the good God. Everything at its root comes from him trying to say, God is not good, do not trust him. But the Bible speaks differently. The first created being, an angel known as Lucifer, he decided to rebel against the authority of God. And ever since then, he's been throwing a temper tantrum, wanting to unseat God as the good father that loves us dearly. This morning, the destroyer, the adversary, desires for you to remain under the weight of burden you carry. Why does he do that? Because if you remain under the lordship of an evil taskmaster, then you won't be free to serve the benevolent, loving master who cares for us all, God himself. And on that resurrection morning, Jesus stepped forth from the tomb victorious over all that would hold him down. Even the most lasting and powerful slave master was destroyed, death itself. In Acts 2.24, Peter declares it this way. He says, God raised Jesus up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Did you catch that? It was not possible for him to be held by it. I love it when uh, my little daughter Kara wants to wrestle, right? She says, Daddy, let's wrestle. And really what she means is, I want you to tickle me, right? And it's really funny because she comes at me like, you know, really strong, like I'm going to take down Daddy, right? It's just not possible. As strong as she is, and in one way, yes, she could take me down easily because she has me wrapped around her little finger. It's not possible for her to take me down. Sometimes I think about the resurrection, and I don't know if you guys think the same way, but I think I'm so glad that God was able to wrestle death and defeat him. And I almost picture this, this cosmic arm wrestling where, where God is against evil and he's, he's holding on and, ah, oh, you know, he's fighting and then he just barely gets over the top and, yeah, okay, yeah, we're... That's not how the resurrection happened. The resurrection was Jesus going, bring it. <laughs> right? It was not, not possible for him to be held by death. The truth is is that God is so powerful that it was not possible that even the greatest slave master of death could hold him. There was no contest. There was only victory. And I find in my own life so often, I'm, God, would you please wrestle with this evil and, and I hope you overcome it. No, the reality is he already has. He has victory. It's not possible for him to be held by it. But in my immediate circumstances, it feels like he's being defeated. No, he's not. We just don't have the view to see his victory. And so now Jesus declares to us this morning freedom from all those things that oppress us. For those that follow Jesus, we can stand in the middle of whatever defeats us and we can say, God is good. I'll give you a little too much information here. The other night, the night before last, I was very ill. I was worshiping at the altar of the porcelain God, if you will. (laughs) I was very ill. I thought to myself, oh, this fits. This, you know, this is what happens usually around Easter. Something big hits, you know. And it was kind of funny because, you know, I, I was laying there on the floor, about passed out, 
And I don't know why, but it just came to my lips, God, you're good. Now, maybe that's weird and sick and twisted, I don't know, but I was just laying there and I was thinking, God is good, because you know what? One day sickness will have no hold. And every Easter, every Easter, every Easter that we've been in existence as a church, something massive spiritually or oppressively or even within relationships has hit this church or hit my family. And it's amazing because I can walk through all those looking at how it happened and what came out of it, and I always say, God is good. He will bring the increase. We just have to be faithful to walk with Him in it. And so God calls to us and says, you're free from the oppression. Walk in that freedom and take that freedom to other people. And that is why we, as Christians, take freedom of the oppressed to the slave, the poor, the widows, the fatherless, the sojourner, and anyone that does not know that God has declared them free. And the third thing, and the last thing we see this morning is this, victory for the morning. And not morning as opposed to evening, morning as in morning like you would at a funeral. Victory for the morning. Maybe this morning you know the freedom and salvation of Jesus. You know you are forgiven. You know that you've been freed from that which oppresses you. But maybe you're one who sees the brokenness in those around you, and you wish with all your might that you could free those that you love from that which holds them. You wish that you could help them to understand the freedom of God. I understand this as a pastor. I understand this as I walk with people in their addictions and their brokenness and their hurts and their broken relationships. Sometimes you just have to mourn. I think in my idealistic mentality, many of you know me, I'm very idealistic. I always think, oh, we can get there. We can get to that. No, no, sometimes things are just broken. And sometimes you just need to mourn. But the reality is, is in the midst of mourning, there is always victory. You know why? Because mourning is what points us to the need for victory. Perhaps in your line of work as social workers or nurses, teachers, or with law enforcement, it puts you on the front line of seeing the brokenness of our community or the sick or those ravaged by sin, and you mourn. Maybe you're a parent in here this morning. You're watching the brokenness in your children or that has come against your children and you want nothing more than to save them from the effects of the sin in the world. And you think, man, Lord, I'm stuck in mourning mode. When's victory going to come? Or maybe you have recently lost someone. You've been faced with the harsh reality of death and you are mourning for the loss of that loved one or the effects that death has on those that are close to you. In all of these cases, Jesus gives us the victory at the end of mourning. It's a funny pun in the English. One of the Psalms says, joy comes in the morning. And I find that some of my greatest times of joy come in the midst of the heaviest mourning because I realize that even the thing that makes me mourn cannot conquer God. Jesus, in his inaugural address, known as the Sermon on the Mount, as king, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's a promise. That's not a maybe, that's a promise. And that comfort comes not in the removal of the heartache, but in the reality that there is something more powerful than that which causes us to mourn. And that power will one day fill the whole earth, and nothing will be able to stand in its way. The resurrection 
was an event that happened, but that continues to happen in every moment that we act in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and in the character of Jesus Christ, showing what the kingdom will be like in a kingdom that is here but will fully come one day. When Jesus saw the effects of sin and death upon his good friend Lazarus, the Bible declares that Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. But then out of that mourning, he proved his victory over that which causes us to mourn by raising Lazarus from the dead. And that was not to last forever. It was simply a foretaste. And this morning is simply a foretaste of what will come. The fact that Jesus will resurrect and he will reign in righteousness on this earth. And he will destroy all those things that wish to destroy us. And so this morning, we can be assured of this fact. Say it with me. We are victorious in Christ. Say it again. We are victorious in Christ. Now, you may be sitting there today thinking to yourself, this is all well and good, Hans, but aren't these just words? I don't feel victorious today. Well, I am here to tell you that you are in very good company. Turn with me to Matthew 28, and we'll finish here. Matthew 28. Starting in verse 1, let's hear the word of the Lord. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, how'd you like to be the other Mary? (laughs) Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. I want you to put yourself in the place of these women. Were they going in an attitude of conquering and victory to the tomb? Were they excited? Were they running with their streamers and their balloons to celebrate? No, they weren't. Their rabbi, their Lord, had just been murdered for crimes he did not commit. The disciples had scattered, and most likely the Romans were looking for them to imprison or kill them. And so here you have these women with massive courage going to the tomb. See, they thought the stone was still there and there were still soldiers. Imagine being those women, thinking you were going to have to walk up to soldiers, ask them to remove the stone of the tomb and accompany you inside. That's gutsy. And so it makes sense that the first thing that the angel says and the first thing that Jesus says to them is the same statement, do not be afraid. 
I would be afraid. Their rabbi, their best friend, their hope, their king. He died. What feeling would you have? And they say, don't be afraid. Easy for you to say, you're an angel. Easy for you to say, Jesus, don't be afraid. You're Jesus. You just resurrected from the dead. But I believe that the same answer the angel gave to the women is the same answer that I would have you walk out of here with today. The statement, he is not here. He is risen. There are two places that they think could have been the place where Jesus was entombed in Israel. And they're both wonderful. I've been to both of them. But in the garden tomb, it's this small little hole. You go into this wall and you kind of for me, I have to do this, right? And you creep in and you kind of look there and there's a spot where most likely if that was the spot, Jesus would have lain, right? And then you turn around and you go to exit out and there's a sign on the door as you leave that says this. It says, he is not here. He is risen. And I remember having the experience, I don't know, John, you were there with us. I don't remember if you felt the same way, but I remember having this like aha moment of like, yeah, he's not here doesn't matter who you are or what you believe. You can be atheist, agnostic, Buddhist. It doesn't matter. You have to wrestle with the fact that Jesus is not here. He's resurrected. And this gospel demands a reaction. It is not just a passing headline that you can say, oh yeah, Jesus resurrected. It demands a response. And in that moment, the response that came over me was, he is alive, am I? He is alive and resurrected. Am I walking in that new life? He is not here. He sits at the right hand of the Father, enthroned over his people, ruling his people, knowing that he will one day come and he will bring grace and righteousness and justice to this world. We sit and we struggle with our own sin, beating ourselves up about it, and God says to us, Christ is not dead. He is alive. He is risen and your sins are forgiven you. Repent from them and accept the forgiveness of the Lord. We sit in the midst of broken relationships, wondering if there will be any healing. And God says to us, Christ destroyed the effects of division and brought reconciliation. He brought it to the world when he arose on that resurrection Sunday. And his power can apply to your relationships if you let it. Die to yourself as he did and resurrect the relationship anew just as he did. Make a new one in the midst of the old. Maybe we walk under the weight of oppression from shame and guilt, anxiousness and depression, and God says to us, Christ is not dead. He is alive. Why are you still living as though his death and resurrection has no effect on the circumstances of your life? Why are you living as if he is dead and rotted in the grave? All shame, all guilt, all anxiousness, fear and depression went with Christ on that cross and it was buried in the tomb and it stayed there. But he resurrected. Jesus resurrected. And he brought new life to that which was dead. Don't sit in that tomb any longer. Don't look at that open door wishing that you could be the one to walk through it. Walk through it with Christ. Step out into the light with him and bask in the fact that he views you and me as a new creation. The old is dead. 
the new has come. If you are struggling with sin in your life, sin that was done to you or sin that you have done, Jesus wants to give you victory this morning. The question is, will you let him? He wants to remove all the guilt and shame that you've carried along with that brokenness. Won't you let him have it? Won't you give it to him and let him raise you anew? This morning, I want us to walk in the victory of the good news of Jesus Christ, that God sent his son to die on the cross, rise from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit, ascend to glory and be seated at the right hand of God and to know that he is coming at the end of the age to redeem his image bearers from our sin and condemnation. He has poured out his spirit upon us to justify us, to sanctify us, and one day he will glorify us in perfection. All this is God's work that he has done because he loves you. He loves you deeply. So when he heard your cry and the cry of many like you, he said, I will arise, I will lift myself up. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? And we can say that we are victorious in Christ because of Jesus. And this gospel demands a response. If you are not one who calls Jesus Lord and King of your life this morning, you've heard the good news of the God that created you, and it demands a response. You cannot sit by and think, this is something I will deal with later. Your response today will either be to deny its truth and power and harden your heart against it, or to accept its truth, turn away from sin, and follow Christ to a greater extent than you ever have before. To join his people and walk in his ways. If you would like to do that, if today is a day where you say, it is time for me to walk away from sin and pursue the God that created me. I want victory over these things in my life. That I'm going to be in the back there. I would love to talk with you about what that looks like to follow Jesus Christ, to be a disciple of Jesus. During worship after communion, come back and talk to me. And I would love to talk with you about what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. If you're a Christian here this morning, then I would call you to let the resurrection reinvigorate your walk to that place of faith and hope that you once knew. Don't let your feelings of being oppressed or feeling like you've failed conquer the truth that Jesus is alive. He is not in the tomb. He has arisen. And I want us to worship this morning in our singing, in our giving of our tithes and offerings, and in our communion in a way that says we know that we are victorious in Christ. Nothing can conquer me. Nothing can hold me down any longer because we are victorious in Christ. Say it with me. We are victorious in Christ.